Hello, stranger. Welcome to the Lineup Podcast. If you're a fan of mystery, you've come to the right place. With each episode, we unearth the strange case from around the world. Today's episode, we joined Peter Blauner on a journey through 1980s New York, where one hostile street encounter leads him to a shadowy world hidden beneath the city. This is a story that takes place in a city that doesn't quite exist anymore. This was the New York of the 1980s and the 1990s. This was a time when there were 2,200 murders a year. Crack and AIDS were rampant. In the neighborhood where I lived and had gone to school, the Upper West Side, was awash in the homeless. I had grown up in the city of the 60s and the 70s, so I was used to a certain untethering from social norms. I was used to not looking twice when I saw people crossing the street without pants on. The school I went to had a guy named the Birdman who would stand outside the entrance squawking every day when kids came in almost like he was taking attendance. And I remember Moondog, a great character who would stand in front of the CBS building on 6th Avenue, dressed as a Viking every day with a spear and a horned helmet. He later turned out to be a famous avant-garde composer, so just goes to show you never know. I was able to make a living writing about this city that I loved and was fascinated by and occasionally scared by. The streets have always fascinated me because you can spend every day on them as a close, observant student and still not know them at all. Because they're as changeable as the sea. The tide is always bringing something new along and dragging something else away that you thought was going to be eternal. My wife and I decided that we would have a child in the city and we would stay here to raise him, partly because I grew up on its streets, and the city had given me so much as a writer. So one day, when my son was just under 12 months old, my wife, in sore need of richly deserved rest, pointed out the window at dawn, slowly breaking over the Hudson, and said, get this kid out. (laughs) Get Get some fresh air. So it was one of those days when the city seems stunned and not quite over whatever hangover it had from the night before. And I pushed my son up bleak, mostly deserted Broadway toward a local landmark, a 
bagel store that was called H&H Bagel on 80th Street and Broadway, where the smell of fresh baked dough was as dependable and comforting as the rising of the sun. But on this morning, there was a group of men in the doorway I'd never seen before. They were loose and loud, and it wasn't even 6 o'clock in the morning yet. Now, I just spent six months as a volunteer probation officer so I could write a novel about the crack epidemic. And I could see those guys were from something close to that world. They had the kind of aimless, cranked-up energy I'd seen in prison yards upstate and the kind of muscles you get from having nothing to do except work out day after day. And there's this one dude in a red T-shirt and a black baseball cap who was laughing hard in that way that seems to have nothing to do with humor and everything to do with drawing attention to himself. Reflexively, I did what he wanted and I looked at him. Our eyes met and then he looked down at my hands on the handles of the stroller. He took two big steps toward me, cocked back his fist so it was on a straight trajectory to the middle of my face and he said, Call the police on me now, motherfucker. And if I had a weapon in my possession and a second to get my hands up, I would have killed him. Right there on Broadway in front of my one-year-old son, without hesitation. As I pushed my son across the street, I was shaking with rage. But by the time I'd gone two blocks, I knew that reaction was not only pointless, but a cliché. Of course, I wasn't going to kill anyone in front of my kid. That would be bad parenting, right? Almost as bad from a writing standpoint. It was obvious that this was every man's response to a situation like this. And it was familiar from movies like Death Wish and Cape Fear and Straw Dogs. And from real-life events like the Bernard Getz subway shooting. <laughs> You're old enough to remember that from the 1980s. Anyway, once I'd gotten home and put my son to bed and had a cup of coffee, I started thinking about another way. Where was this guy coming from, and why did he want to provoke me? And how did he end up in that doorway in the first place when I just happened to be walking by? I come from the school that says you need two sticks rubbing together to start a fire, story-wise. And to be completely honest, I'd wanted to write about somebody on the margins of society, and now I had an angle. So I threw myself into the research. I got myself a job working as a volunteer at a homeless shelter and got to know some of the clientele. Now, many of them were what's called MICAs in the psychosocial world. That stands for Mentally Ill Chemical Abusers. There's a few things to be said about trying to understand other people's delusional systems in a way that's useful for writing narrative fiction. One is that it's tiring and inconclusive. Two is that it's more rewarding to follow your own delusions as a novelist. Though I did learn something about the moment-by-moment -moment struggle to hang on to reality that some people go through, which was important in creating a character. And I also did notice that several of the people I got to know had been golf caddies in an earlier part of their life, in a couple of cases at very exclusive country clubs in the suburbs. So it could just be a coincidence, or it could be something about pink and green pants and carrying heavy bags in the sun that unhinges people. 
I also found an intrepid journalist named Mark Stamey who had a graduate degree in sociology and a familiarity with the community of homeless people who lived in the train tunnels beneath Riverside Park on Manhattan's west side. That group was known as the Mole People. I visited those tunnels with and without Mark, and I can honestly say that aside from the peak of Mount Sinai, it was one of the most striking places I've ever been in my life. At night, it was as dark as the inside of a coffin, but with the occasional little flicker of light in the distance, as people flared their bics and zippos, at crack pipes. If you looked at the walls long enough, you could see black spaces within the blackness and realize that there were little hovels that people were living inside the walls. But when I went back during the day, I saw a beautiful Michelangelo light slanting down through the subway gratings, revealing a gray-toned hidden world. There were shockingly accomplished jumbo screen-sized reproductions of Goya, Picasso, and Dick Tracy in the walls, created by graffiti artists. There were rows of shantytown shacks along the railway tracks, with extension cords leading up through the vents and providing electricity stolen from the streetlights in the park above. There was the smell of eggs in the air and the sound of midday TV game shows. This is not mental illness, Mark assured me. There's an economic motor on this. In other words, he was saying, people were here because they didn't have jobs or any other place to go. I was dubious, especially after we talked to some of the so-called mole people living down there. Incidentally, there were also people living beneath Grand Central Station at the time, and I was told that the deeper you went, the more profound the mental illness was in those days. There was a legend that on the lowest level of Grand Central, there was a character called the Archangel, who all the other homeless people were afraid of and stayed away from. But to tell you the truth, after talking to some of the other people down there, I came to the conclusion that they didn't seem that much crazier or more deluded than a lot of the people I knew who were living on the Upper West Side at the time. Then I smelled French toast and started to look more closely into someone's hovel. And a voice behind me asked in a fairly neutral way, What are you doing? I turned, and a cast iron skillet came flying at my head. I ducked, and a brick followed. A distressed looking man with a foam flecked beard and no belt was flinging things at us as his pants fell down around his ankles. And Mark, being a stand up guy, picked up a pipe and urged me to depart in a hurry. Now that was good scene material, but not really enough to build a full character. That breakthrough came when I reached out to a friend of mine named Janet Wickenhaver, who was editing a paper called Street News back in the day. That paper was run out of a building near Times Square owned by the Durst family, who are now notorious for other reasons. But the paper itself was a noble idea. Every copy was to be distributed and sold by the homeless people on the streets and subways of the city, with the homeless people keeping, I think, 35 cents on every dollar. Janet introduced me to a gentleman named Lee Stringer. Now, I don't use that term with any mockery or irony at all. 
because if you have the privilege of meeting Lee, you might very well use that description yourself. He's a tall man, angular in his build. In those days, his glasses were angular as well because they were crooked. But there was something elegant in his speech that distantly reminded me of someone who could have wound up at the Algonquin Roundtable with a bunch of New Yorker writers back in the 30s and 40s. That is, if they happened to be smoking crack instead of drinking highballs. Basically, the story as I've heard it is that Lee came and went with his papers a few times, faithfully bringing back the publisher's share, and then one day said he had some thoughts about the layout. Being a wise woman, my friend Janet said, give it a shot yourself. Let's see if you can do better. Lo and behold, he changed the balance of elements, and it was good. It turned out that before winding up in his abode at that time, which was literally a storage compartment in a subway platform at Grand Central Station, Lee had done time as a graphics design artist with thoroughly middle-class aspirations. He then turned his attention to the articles themselves, finding reason to criticize the structure and leads of some. Again, Janet challenged him, and he did, eventually starting to write regularly for the paper while eventually moving from the subway platform to a beat-up couch in the office. It was at that point that I met and started spending time with Lee. We had many adventures and saw many curious things in the mid-90s. And I learned a tremendous amount from him about the details and fundamentals of surviving on the street. Strangely, we also met a few more homeless people who had previously been golf caddies, so there you go. But the most valuable thing Lee taught me wasn't about collecting recycle cans for money or how to strip copper off subway pipes sell it to scrapyards for drug money, or where the best methadone clinics were, or how to survive a night in lockup, though those are all important lessons. What he taught me was something more universal and valuable about human character. And he said it not when we were down in those tunnels or out on the street on a winter night, but in the back of a coffee shop eating french fries. I asked him how he went from being a graphics designer with a picture of the import car he wanted to buy on his office corkboard to being a homeless guy. And he said, you can't understand it in one line. Everything only makes sense in light of what came right before. He explained, and I'm paraphrasing here, imagine building a life for yourself atop the wreckage of a broken childhood. Imagine a matchstick construct of ambition and social understanding. Then imagine a traumatic event. The person closest to you dies. Imagine depression that darkens and deepens over time. Imagine finding solace in the bottle and weed, and then when that's not enough, substance is brought over by a friend who wants to help. Imagine deciding just this once you'll pay for the drugs instead of the rent. Then imagine your landlord suggesting that you move on. Imagine staying with a friend for a while who likes to get high too. And imagine that doesn't work as well after a while. Now it's a soft summer night, and your friend has asked you to move on, and well, the weather is good, the park is nearby, and it's only a few hours until daylight, and well, you look around one day, and you're one of the homeless.
By the time we'd finished the french fries, I had the book written in my head. I went on to write that novel, and then several others with similar kinds of research, and I lost track of Lee after a while. I found him a few years later. Things had changed. Street news had gone under, but not before Lee had become one of the lead writers for the paper. His prose caught the attention of a small independent publisher, which offered him a contract to expand some of the pieces into a book. Lee, hearing that the advance would be $3,000, thought that would be an adequate sum to cover his habit. But gradually, the habit of smoking crack was replaced with the habit of writing. To make a long story short, he went through a lot, and that's his tale to tell, but he did manage to write the book. And it was good. It was called Grand Central Winter. The publisher gave it to Kurt Vonnegut, in fact, who read it and pronounced Lee the new Jack London. By then, my wife had moved on to a job with CNN, and she was able to get him on the air. Eventually, Oprah mentioned the book, and the thing was published around the world. Now, I'm capable of delusions like any other writer, but I'm not deluded enough to say that Lee wouldn't have written that book if he hadn't met me. But perhaps he might have thought, if this idiot can write a book about homeless people, then I definitely can. Either way, what started with an encounter on Broadway ended up with two books on the shelf. This episode is brought to you by The Eagle Has Landed by Jack Higgins. An international bestseller set during World War II, Jack Higgins' thriller about a plot to kidnap Winston Churchill has sold over 50 million copies and was turned into an acclaimed film starring Michael Caine, Donald Sutherland, and Robert Duvall. One of the most famous thrillers ever written, The Eagle Has Landed is now available wherever ebooks are sold. Peter, uh, thank you for that incredible story you just delivered. That was something else. Thank you. So I know a little bit about your backstory, and you've had experience with the dark side of New York City in the past, right? You were a crime writer, crime reporter, and you also worked as a parole officer, as you insinuated in your story. Is that correct? Um, I uh, started my career working for New York Magazine. I reported on crime, politics, and other forms of antisocial behavior. Okay. Or aberrant behavior, if we're talking about politics as well. And then the parole officer work as well. Uh, what happened was, around the 1980s, I uh, read a quote from the writer Stanley Elkin, and he said that he always started with the character's job. And I didn't want to write a Holden Caulfield coming-of-age story. I wanted to write a book in which the plot, the theme, and the language would be inspired by real-world experience. And so through my work as a journalist, I started looking for a job that would fit that bill. And one day I wrote about a probation officer, and within the space of an hour, he had a Wall Street inside trader who'd just been convicted for financial crimes, a middle-class lady who was a kleptomaniac uh, who'd uh, been stealing uh, underwear from uh, Bloomingdale's, and a street kid from the projects who was dealing crack. And I thought, this is a world 
within four walls. I can write a book about this. And so I left my job in New York Magazine, and I went through the training program to be a probation officer so I could have the day-to-day experience. And is that desire, that first, that desire for the first-hand experience, is that what also drove you to look into these people more when you encounter that individual on the street while you're walking your child? Is that what provoked you or pushed you in the direction to not just shrug off what would otherwise be just an awful morning with your child on the streets, but really dig in to what happened there that morning? I, I, part of what has been a great reward about being a writer in New York is the way that the colored lights go on every day and, and trying not to be so jaded that you don't see them anymore. I, I remember the moment when I decided to become a writer. It was when I was 14 years old and uh, I'd saved my money and I was trying to buy my mother a, a scarf from Gimbel's department store. And I turned around and there was a little girl maybe four years old, starting to pull down her dress and her underwear. And her Irish nanny said to her, stop that, you're as bad as your mother. (laughs) I I said, I have to tell somebody this story. (laughs) (laughs) And and consistently I have found that looking for the real thing always gives you a detail that is richer, crazier, and more inspiring than anything you could steal from another book or a television show. And the the city, if you're willing to uh, take refuge from the tyranny of your own thoughts, gives you those details every hour, every day. I feel like that's leads perfectly into the experience of you going down to the tunnels for the first time. Yeah. And how incredible and mind-boggling and how enriching and stranger the truth will always be than fiction. Can you walk through that first, as much as you can remember, that first night? Was it a day that you went in? And the first time I went down was at night. Okay. And uh, I began my career working for a, a very great New York newspaper columnist named Pete Hamill. And Pete taught me three things right at the beginning of my career. He said, uh, you must always ask the hardest question you can think of. You must always try and get your impressions down on paper as soon as you have them, or else you will forget one of the details later. And you, you may need it a year or 10 years later. And the third thing was always listen very carefully to the last thing that somebody says. But um, the overall lesson was you must never lose your nerve. And if you have a moment when you are afraid, you are not doing your job if you don't overcome that. So I heard about this community living underneath the park. And naturally, I, I was intrigued. It seems like something from a Neil Gaiman fantasy novel. Uh, it's, you, you imagine an alternative world, and, and it really was. It didn't disappoint in that way. Um, I, as I remember it, the entrance was under an elevated part of the highway around 72nd Street, I believe. Uh, the 
entrance to the tracks themselves was not clearly demarcated. There were some steel bars that had been uh, bent back somehow. Uh, and you entered through those bars and then descended some crumbling stone steps. And you could actually smell the dampness of the stone. And you looked behind you and the lights of the city began to disappear as you, you approached this darkness that uh, felt very, very vast. You could not quite ascertain the full dimensions of the tunnel except at those moments when an Amtrak train came roaring through, in which case everything shook and everything was illuminated uh, for a few seconds. And in those few seconds, as uh, the light strobed through the tunnel and the windows passed like the sprockets of film going through a projector, you could see things that seemed remarkable. You could see these reproductions of panels from Dick Tracy cartoons, Salvador Dali's The Melting Clock, uh, Goya paintings. I, I believe there was a, a Picasso reproduction. Uh, but also you could see holes high up on the wall, catacombs where uh, people were living. And then you could also see that there was shanty shacks that had uh, been built next to the rails, uh, and that there was a hidden world down here. What were you feeling when you were walking through there? Did that feel as if you were intruding upon a space you didn't belong? Did it feel as if you had discovered something that needed to be talked about more? I felt that I was being given a very rare privileged experience, mm. but also being an invader mm. uh, into a world where I didn't really belong. And then I would see these little fireflies in the distance and realize that was people smoking crack somewhere if I was looking north from 72nd Street, and I would estimate that they were at the equivalent of 83rd Street or uh, 94th Street, far away. But uh, I knew they weren't down there because they were happy. Hmm. And uh, I had a sense that it could become a very, very volatile situation very quickly if I wasn't careful. Hmm. So I, I stayed down there for a while with uh, a companion who um, had been down there. He was a, he was a, a lawyer who helped uh, homeless people, and he was very kind to accompany me. Um, but he wasn't that familiar with the environment either, and I, I could tell he was scared. And also I was very aware that I was someone who had a one-year-old child at home, and perhaps I was uh, in a situation where I was taking a risk, which would have been okay if I was just me by myself and I didn't have a family, but that entailed uh, more responsibility now uh, that I had people who I needed to come home to. So I came back 
the next day with uh, Mark Stamey and with uh, a photographer named Lynn Seville, who's uh, actually done the covers of some of my books, or whose photographs I've used for the covers of some of my books. Uh, and ironically, that's where, and ironically, that's when it became a dangerous situation that one of the people felt that I had uh, invaded his home, mm-hmm. which I did, mm-hmm. which is something that writers uh, do. And uh, he let me know that uh, he was not pleased about that. Uh, and he, his criticism came in the form of a cast iron skillet <laughs> flying at my head. <laughs> And with Lee Stringer, whose life uh, seems to be a novel unto itself, uh, how many times did you did you get to meet him? Did you get to? Oh speak no, to Lee him? is Lee is a friend of mine, and oh, okay. Lee is still around. Lee is uh, uh, has been off the streets for many years. He's published uh, several books himself. He's a distinguished author himself. He, he, uh, Grand Central Winter is his first book. He's the co-author of a book with uh, Kurt Vonnegut called Shaking Hands with God. Uh, and another book about his uh, uh, early life called uh, Sleepaway School. Uh, so I had lunch with Lee about a month ago. Okay. So he's uh, he's doing terrific, and and it um, belies a, a certain cliche that I come back to, and that I still partly believe, which is that people don't change that much. But that's not always true, because what this experience has often told me is that you don't first impressions aren't everything. I mentioned Moondog mm-hmm. at the beginning of the story. Yeah. Moondog was a legendary figure for those of us who grew up in the city from 1949 to 1974 or something like that. He was out on Sixth Avenue all the time with a little dog sometimes with a spear. Uh, wearing a Viking helmet, and he seemed like a deranged person, uh, just someone who uh, went back to the city shelters every night and was in a catatonic state uh, all day long. I later learned that actually he was a very accomplished avant-garde composer, much respected by people like Leonard Bernstein and uh, Bob Dylan and even Stravinsky had heard his music. And Lee, who people might have just seen as just another homeless guy, contains volumes once you begin to talk to him. So you really never do know. Peter Blauner, thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you. Thanks. Peter Blauner has spent nearly his entire life exploring the streets of New York City, both above and below. He's the author of the Edgar Award-winning crime novel Slow Motion Riot, as well as Casino Moon, The Man of the Hour, The Last Good Day, and the New York Times bestseller, The Intruder. Learn more at peterblauner.com. The Lineup Podcast is written and produced by the Lineup staff and myself, Matthew Thompson. Special thanks to Peter Blauner and our partners in crime at Open Road Media. Our audio producer is Chai Dingari. Background music is by Audio Soccer. And our theme music is provided by Absofacto at absofacto.com. For more information on the stories we present, visit our website, thelineup.com. That's the-line-up.com.
up.com, where murder and mayhem is delivered daily. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter as well. It brings you five mysteries to your inbox every week. This is Matthew, and that does it for me. Till next time, keep it weird. <laughs>